from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at the latest legal action with Wisconsin's voting maps. It would be a really accelerated timeline for the Supreme Court to get involved at this point and to have new congressional districts potentially drawn in the next two months. Then we'll take a look at the real estate market in Wauwatosa. Once that ceiling was broken, it opened the floodgates. And by the end of this year, they had eight additional million dollar plus home sales in Wauwatosa. Plus, we'll learn about the restored Wurlitzer pipe organ that now calls the Oriental Theater home. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. In December, the state Supreme Court ruled that the state's legislative voting maps are unconstitutional, and there's an effort underway right now to have them redrawn. Now there's more legal action. A law firm representing Democratic voters is challenging the maps for the eight congressional districts in the state. WUWM's Chuck Kornbach is joined by UW political science professor Barry Burden to talk about the new lawsuit and break down what's happening with redistricting in the state. It is surprising to see this case come in early 2024 when we know from the other litigation that's going on that the Elections Commission wants to know what the new districts will be by March 15th. So it would be a really accelerated timeline for the Supreme Court to get involved at this point and to have new congressional districts potentially drawn in the next two months. I think the suggestion from the plaintiffs in this new case is that the state Supreme Court opened the door to taking another look at maps when in December the court said, yes, we need new state legislative maps. It does seem that the Supreme Court set the stage to essentially invite plaintiffs to bring a challenge against the congressional districts. You know, the justices in their ruling just before the Christmas holiday struck down the state legislative districts saying they were adopted based on a standard that doesn't exist in Wisconsin law. And that's the idea of least change or wanting to alter the existing districts drawn by the legislature as little as possible. But the justices reasoned that that was essentially a baked in advantage for one political party. The districts also had some other problems, especially the contiguity of the districts. And they said least change was not a workable or appropriate standard and ought to be scrapped and the districts drawn anew. So the plaintiffs in this congressional case are now saying if that's the case with the state legislative districts, then it's true with the eight house districts as well. What more can you tell us about the least change concept in terms of how long it's been around, why it is applied in these cases? Well, it was it was never around until the 2020 census was done and those districts were drawn in 2021 by the state legislature. The governor, who's a Democrat, obviously vetoed those and the two branches could not come to agreement, ended up eventually as a case before the state Supreme Court and the conservative majority there decided that they wanted to alter the districts that had been adopted by the legislature as little as possible. But those districts had been drawn back in 2011 after the 2010 census by a Republican majority signed into law by a Republican governor. So they did have a Republican advantage to them, intentionally so. And plaintiffs in the case argued that that was an unreasonable thing and it was a standard that was created out of thin air, which was true. It does reflect kind of a, a stance of many 
courts around the country that they don't view themselves as a lawmaking branch. They're just calling balls and strikes when it comes to the law. They'd rather not be in the business of actually drawing districts or writing law. And so least change would be a way to kind of let the political branches have their way, even if it seems partisan or distasteful or something. But it was not a standard that had ever been used in Wisconsin. So it was created anew just for this case. So on this new case, challenging the congressional maps, which Wisconsin districts do you think Democrats are most likely to want to change for this summer and fall? In a state that is divided pretty well 50-50 between the two parties in statewide elections, uh, Democrats only have two of those seats and Republicans have six. So I think Democrats would be happy to get back anything to get them closer to parity. But there are two districts in particular that are of interest to the Democrats. The first congressional district in the southeast corner of the state, represented by Brian Stile, and the third congressional district, represented by freshman representative Derek Van Orden. Those are the two most competitive districts in the state. Republicans won them, but not by a lot. Other statewide races, like the race for governor in 2022, suggested they might be winnable for Democrats, even with the existing lines. If new lines were drawn, they might really become competitive and give Democrats a shot at getting back to a 4-4 split in the state delegation. Yeah, in the first congressional uh, representative Stiles district, there was a couple of years ago a uh, redrawing that gave him more Milwaukee County districts, took away some more Republican County districts, but imagine the Democrats might like to see him get a little bit of the city of Milwaukee or other uh, Democratic areas to the southwest end of the district, maybe. Yeah, both the first and the third lean Republican. So that in expectation, you'd expect Republicans to win by a small margin. But they have been tinkered with over the years to sort of bring in suburban communities or rural communities or take them out. And Stiles District is, you know, encompassing a lot of different kinds of communities, medium-sized cities like Racine and Kenosha, Milwaukee suburbs, rural communities, and some other small towns. And so it would be very possible to alter the margins of that district a little bit and, and really change the politics of the district quite a bit. We're trying not to get ahead of ourselves here as to whether the Wisconsin Supreme Court will take the case. But, you know, if they do and if they would rule in the plaintiff's favor, wouldn't that just open the door to an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court over these congressional maps? There would certainly be an appeal, I think, by Republicans in the same way that they're hoping to appeal the state Supreme Court case dealing with the state legislative districts. But I'm not sure the U.S. Supreme Court would have much to say about this case. It's about state law and the state constitution. You know, the complaint that Republicans made in the state legislative case is that one of the justices, in particular Janet Protasiewicz, should have recused herself because of her connection to the Democratic Party during her campaign. I suppose that would be part of this complaint as well. But it just doesn't seem to me like there's much federal law involved. It's not about the racial makeup of districts, which is often where the feds get involved. So the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court would really have to want to be involved in this case and maybe reach for a rationale to take it up and re-decide it. Can you remind listeners of why sometimes the U.S. Constitution matters, sometimes the state constitution matters? Yeah, you know, the, the parties in these cases who bring the complaints forward do a kind of venue shopping. They look for favorable courts. They think they're going to get the best decision. Essentially, all of the redistricting cases now in Wisconsin are going to the state Supreme Court because of a procedural move a couple years ago. But before that, litigation was mostly in federal court. You know, the federal issues are things like the Voting Rights Act, 
which guarantees protections for minority voters to ensure that they have the right to elect candidates of their choice. That's still in play in the background, but the kind of other provisions of the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Supreme Court has mostly said don't apply. For example, partisanship is allowed <laughs> to almost any extent that the mapmakers want to be involved. But the Wisconsin Constitution, Wisconsin laws are a little different. And at least here, it looks like the people bringing the case forward think there's enough there that might allow them to get these uh, eight districts upturned and some new ones put in place. Okay. Wisconsin, hardly the only state where congressional maps are being challenged or looked at uh, this time around. Uh, why so many? And what do we know about the success of challenges elsewhere? Well, I, I think there are two reasons why we're seeing so many cases. One is that there's just been a lot of litigation around redistricting in the last couple of decades. This is a regular part of the process now. The U.S. Census is conducted. States are given data so that they can draw new districts. Somebody, the legislature or a commission or someone else, draws those districts, and then a group or multiple groups file suit. So, and Wisconsin is no uh, stranger to that. We're also a battleground state, so I think the interest in doing it are greater because it really could affect the partisan balance in the state legislature with regard to those districts. The second reason I think we're seeing more action is that the U.S. House of Representatives is so narrowly divided between the Republican majority in the Democratic minority, it's only a few seats that the Republicans have as a kind of cushion. They, they can barely lose any members on a vote and get things passed in the House. And so the uncertainty of this coming election season you know, could mean Republicans lose their majority or they grow it. And so even gaining a seat for a party, just one seat in a state like Wisconsin could contribute to the national picture. There are also other states moving. There are several states in the South where districts are being redrawn because of racial considerations. In North Carolina, essentially all of the districts are being redrawn. That'll probably help Republicans. In New York, they're gonna be redrawn. It looks like it'll help Democrats. So hard to say where all of this will shake out, but every district might matter in a closely divided house. Right, so there is some success at redrawing lines elsewhere. The question is in Wisconsin, is the legal argument strong enough to order some changes here? I don't know. It, it, you know, it looks like the argument was strong enough in the case of the state legislative districts. Those are being redrawn now. And the argument here is pretty similar with regard to the congressional districts. In fact, they're leaning on the state decision to try to say that the same thing must be done with congressional districts. I think the challenge is that the timeline is much tighter uh, because this case is just being brought now, whereas the state legislative districts were challenged initially in the fall after Protosewicz joined the court. The good news for the people bringing the case is that this drawing the congressional districts in some ways is easier and can be done more quickly. There are only eight districts, unlike the Assembly and Senate, where 99 Assembly districts and 33 Senate districts had to be redrawn, and the Assembly districts have to be nested within the Senate districts. Congressional districts are much easier than that. And there are already two experts that have been identified by the Supreme Court to oversee the process and maybe draw districts for the state legislature they potentially could be reused for drawing the congressional districts. As long as they have the data and all the tools available, you know, they, they would be in a place to act more quickly than experts who are picked anew. So voters uh, need to pay a lot of attention come March, April, August, et cetera, going to really need to pay attention what district they're in. Yeah, there are many things changing in this busy election year, and the district lines are one of them. Essentially, all of this, the Assembly and Senate districts are going to be redrawn, and we should know where those lines are by March. If this challenge to the congressional districts is successful, new lines would be in place by March. 
And that may seem early when the general election is not till November for a lot of voters, but keep in mind that candidates need to take out papers to file and they need to know what districts they live in, where they might run. And those papers can be taken out in mid-April for a primary that happens in August. So it really is necessary that the court act quickly so that everything can be in place for a successful election year. Barry Burden is a political science professor at UW-Madison. He spoke with WUWM's Chuck Kornbach. There's a lot at stake with redistricting, and you can follow along at wuwm.com. We're hearing from a lot of people who have filled out our election survey that redistricting is an important topic to them. You can find information about how to fill out the survey at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore and compare the different maps before the Wisconsin Supreme Court and how they mesh with the criteria the court set. Later on in the show, we'll head to Milwaukee's east side to learn how a nearly 100-year-old pipe organ was restored and installed at the Oriental Theater. But first, we'll look at the real estate market in Wauwatosa after several homes have sold there for over $1 million. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. In March of last year, for the very first time, a home in Wauwatosa sold for over $1 million. Six weeks later, a second home there sold for over a million. And by the end of 2023, nine homes in Tosa sold for over $1 million. So why are these homes being priced this way now? And why did so many homes sell for so much immediately after the first? Julie Feldman wrote about this trend in this month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine. She joins Lake Effect Sam Woods to talk about the phenomenon. You know, there's a ceiling in every business, isn't there? There's a ceiling for women working. There's a ceiling for how far you can get in a job. There's a ceiling for this and that. Well, there's a ceiling in markets, too, for housing. And there was a perception. This starts with a perception among many people in Wauwatosa that you couldn't sell a house there for over a million dollars. And it stuck. Don't ask me why. It just did. In fact, when this first house came up for sale, the realtor who did a wonderful job in selling this house first went and tried to sell it without getting involved with MLS. She went to different brokers who had clientele she thought would be willing to pay a million dollars. All of these people that she approached said, there's no way you're going to sell it for a million dollars. You're dreaming. She said, watch me. She got the house staged, staged every single detail in the house, went on MLS, and boom, an out-of-state buyer who was used to million-dollar listings picked it up. That broke the ceiling. It took one person to do it, to believe that they could do it, and it broke the ceiling. Once that ceiling was broken, it opened the floodgates. And by the end of this year, They had eight additional million-dollar-plus home sales in Wauwatosa. And so it really just took somebody brave enough to say, I think we can do this and do it. And people followed. 
You mentioned the staging process that the real estate agent put together to um, sell this house. And I know there's this kind of a, a trope in real estate where if you're showing a home, then you may want to bake some cookies right beforehand so the house smells all nice and homey and lived in and all that. And it can psychologically get in the buyer's head of like, oh, this is not just, you know, I'm not looking at a house, I'm looking at a home. Uh, very, very tropey, but, you know, it's kind of the, the gist, right? But hearing you speak about the staging process for this particular home, it sounds like it's a lot more detailed than just, well, we baked a plate of cookies before the showing and that broke that ceiling that you're talking about. It sounds like there was a little bit more thought and intention behind that staging. It wasn't just the staging that sold the house, right? But it's not a house you'd look at and think, oh, this is a million dollar house. But the real estate agent took the staging quite seriously because they, the homeowners had fixed up the house, put it on an addition. It was a mid-century modern. There was old, there was new. And to make the old not look super old next to the new, she did some staging to blend the two so that the older elements of the home really looked like they had the character of mid-century and it blended well with the more modern uh, parts of the home. But staging has They've blown the lid off staging these days. When you're selling a house and you really want to get top price, your real estate agent will probably say, let's stage this home. So what does baking cookies do to help people buy a home? You had mentioned it sets a mindset. It does. It's an emotional trigger. You smell those cookies and you think, mm, I could sit down and really make it comfortable in this home, right? That's what staging does. We buy not just with our heads. We buy and make biggest decisions with our hearts, too. And so that's what the staging does. It takes the property and creates a vision for you where you walk in and you say, wow, I could see myself living here. And she staged every nook and cranny of this home to bring out the kishiness of the mid-century and to bring out the modern of the newer parts, the newer appliances that are clean, that are easy to use, that have this technical capability you never dreamed of 10 years ago. And she, uh, Tammy, her pal, is the uh, realtor on this project. And she really thinks staging had a lot to do with why she was able to garner over a million dollars for this home. Given that this blueprint has been put out there, like this is kind of how you stage a home in Tosa or, or, or just like, or, or maybe the kind of mental psychological break of, well, a million dollars is too much for a home and Wauwatosa has been broken. Do real estate agents expect in 2024 to see similar jumps in home values in Wauwatosa? Or was last year where all of these homes just suddenly um, sold for over a million dollars, was that an anomaly? Let me take out my crystal ball. Yes, please. Shall we say, uh, <laughs> Let's see the future. We both know that crystal balls may not always work, but I did speak uh, recently, very recently, with Katie Corcoran, who is a real estate agent and is an expert in the Wauwatosa area. And I asked her just this. And she said, we will be able to tell where the market's going come spring, probably. It's a little too early to tell now. But so much of what happens in Wauwatosa and in all the realty markets around Metro Milwaukee will have to do with the economy. Why was it so hot before? Because the law of supply and demand, there were very few homes on the market. So the homes that did go sold 
in a blink of an eye. And they sold for a higher price very often than what they were asking because there was nothing to choose from. And interest rates drove that. People didn't want to leave their homes and put them up for sale because they were had a lower interest rate. And if they sold their home, they'd have to buy something else with a higher interest rate, correct? So they hung on to their homes. There were few homes for sale on the market. And the, it really boosted the market and prices and, uh, and changed things. It also changed things for the home buyers because they could get less house for the same amount of money because of the interest rates. So the homeowners were reticent to put their homes on the market. Home buyers got less than what they normally would for a home they were looking at. So the buyers were really out to buy and they spent the money during this time period. If interest rates go down, if the economy corrects itself, a lot of people expect that it will really change the housing market, that sellers will put their homes up on the market. And when they do that, there will be a bigger inventory. And when there's a bigger inventory, you'll have more to choose from and less demand, and you'll be able to get a lower price. If that happens, we may see some change in home prices. Agents do not expect prices to really dip big time in Wauwatosa, even if the market corrects itself. Here's why. More and more people have found out about the wonders of Wauwatosa. In years past, you'd go into Whitefish Bay or Shorewood, which has many of the amenities of Wauwatosa. Walkable, right? Sidewalks. Go out and play outside, uh, and, and your kids will be safe. Um, nearby restaurants, the stuff that makes the neighborhood feel really lively and like home. But being near the lake, the prices were elevated. Wauwatosa, if they couldn't afford Shorewood or Whitefish Bay, they check in Wauwatosa, which has a lot of the same amenities, and they get a home for less there. Now people have discovered Wauwatosa and what a wonderful place it is to live. They don't expect prices to go down much. It may level out a bit as the economy corrects itself. But no, they expect that prices will remain about where they are. So question for you is, is this news of million-dollar homes and breaking the ceiling for million-dollar homes in Wauwatosa a signifier that Wauwatosa is just too expensive to live if you're not in that top income bracket? Absolutely not. Remember, we mentioned there were $9 million home sales since March to the end of the year. That's nine homes out of thousands of homes that are going to be sold in Wauwatosa. Wauwatosa offers homes in price points across the board, and it's a great community for people to live in, to raise families in. And so, uh, no, this does not signal that it's too expensive for uh, everyday folks like myself to live. Um, there, if you go to a real estate agent in Wauwatosa and you tell them, um, I'm looking for a home in this price point, they'll be able to find something for you. It runs the gamut. Gotcha. Well, Julie, thank you again so much for joining me on Lake Effect, and I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, Sam, to talk with you, to meet you, and to talk with your audience. Julie Feldman is the owner of Feldman Media LLC and a contributing writer for Milwaukee Magazine. You can find her article in this month's issue. She spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods.
Since Milwaukee Film took over operations of the Oriental Theater in 2018, they've been working to restore the movie palace to its original grandeur. Except there was one key part missing, a theater organ. That is, until now. I'm WUWM's Lena Tran. And I'm Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. When the Oriental Theater reopened its doors in 2018, it was nearly just as it was a century ago, when ornate movie palaces were all the rage in major cities. They were designed to transport people into other worlds. A big part of how they achieved that world building was with theater pipe organs, those huge, complex instruments known as the voice of silent films. But the Oriental's organ wasn't there anymore. Since it opened in 1928, the Oriental has actually had two organs. The last one was removed and handed over to a new owner before Milwaukee Film took over the theater's operations in 2018. Kristen Heller is the COO of Milwaukee Film. She says they always thought it'd be great to bring an organ back to the Oriental. It was always our dream because it felt like there was a missing piece. It felt like there was something that was part of the original building that wasn't here that we wanted to eventually find an organ for this place. Heller says bringing an organ back to the Oriental Theater is all about tapping into that century-old cinema magic. Once upon a time, there were no audio tracks with film, like a, a piano or an organ was really the only way that there was any kind of music that like, you could convey emotion with sound. Um, and so for us, it sort of allows us to sort of bring back the original magic of this place. This dream was five years in the making, and it began with the search for an organ, which is how Milwaukee Film found Jeff Weiler. He's a renowned expert in pipe organ restoration and maintenance, and runs a business out of Chicago, curating and restoring organs around the world. According to Weiler, the organ at the Oriental Theater is one of only about a dozen out of thousands of Wurlitzer pipe organs made in the early to mid-20th century that's still in its unaltered, factory original state. We acquired this instrument about 18 years ago, and we felt that some good and noble purpose would present eventually. The organ that now calls the Oriental Theater home was originally saved from the Paramount Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. It was installed in 1925 and was rescued in 1960 before the building was going to be demolished. From there, it was taken to North Dallas, Texas, where an attorney decided to build a large music room and have the organ. His pipe dream was never realized, and then it was acquired by J.L. Weiler Incorporated. When Milwaukee Film came knocking, the theater needed an organ, and the organ needed a theater. Weiler says it was a perfect marriage. But then came the hard part. The installation process took them well over a year. It took about 13,000 man-hours to restore the 10-ton organ and multiple truckloads delivered from Chicago. Now, when you walk into the main theater, all you see is the organ console. That's the keyboard and all the buttons and pedals that an organist has contact with. But most of the instrument is hidden from the audience, and it's embedded into the theater itself. The biggest part of the instrument is unseen and is contained in two large organ chambers flanking the proscenium. And of course, there's a big turbine blower down in the basement. So the impact of the organ on the building is pretty significant when you think you have all of these interconnected systems running all around the stage end of the building. That 10 horsepower turbine in the basement keeps air flowing through the pipes, which is how it makes sound. So Lena, do you remember that dark hallway we were kind of creeping around in underneath the stage? It was kind of scary. Yeah, so that's what it was, the turbine going. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did not expect a big hole. 
bit scary. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like, it's like Indiana Jones. The installation process doesn't simply stop when all the instrument's components are connected in the building. Weiler explains how they make sure each organ is fitted to its unique environment. When we wake the instrument up the first time, there is a commissioning protocol that we have to go through because every function has to be tested, adjustments have to be made, and just like any large piece of machinery, this is an instrument that requires regular routine maintenance. But the initial process is perhaps the most involved because we have to musically fit this instrument to the room's acoustics. And that means we have to make very discreet adjustments to all of the pipes in the organ so they sound their best. This can get complicated because the pipe organ makes so many different kinds of sounds. It houses all these instruments, like a piano, of course, but also sleigh bells, drums, a glockenspiel, and other sound effects specifically for silent films. Think doorbells, horse hooves, birdsong. Part of what makes all this possible is one important cable connecting about 2,000 wires. This cable runs from the main console to a large switchboard in the basement that's right under the stage. From there, it's connected to another cable just as big that goes from the main organ chamber to another switchboard, and that's responsible for sending out all the electrical signals to produce sound. All of that uses about 60 miles of wire. Each wire goes to a specific place, and hundreds of on-site man-hours were spent on point-to-point -point wiring to make sure the electric signals do their job to make the organ's action seamless. What makes this instrument unique on the, the national cultural stage is we have restored every bit of the original technology. So this instrument sounds and functions precisely as it did in 1925. So after all this work and fine-tuning this massive instrument, I asked Jeff what it was like to see and hear the organ in its new home. Can you share with me how you felt the first time you heard this organ fully restored playing in this theater? Oh, absolutely. I had tears in my eyes. Think of it. This instrument has not made music since before World War II. And for much of its life, it had been sitting in storage. Now that the Wurlitzer was awake, it needed an audience. Milwaukee Film debuted the organ with a fundraiser and screening of the silent film Safety Last, which recently celebrated its 100th anniversary. The film is known for this iconic scene where a man hangs dangerously off a clock tower over the busy streets of Los Angeles. Basically, it was the Mission Impossible of the 1920s. Organist Ron Rode flew in from Phoenix to accompany the film and showcase the instrument. He's had a long career as an organist. When my theater organ career started, uh, I was 21 and moved to Phoenix and played in a pizza parlor. He always knew he wanted to make the organ his life's work and I met up with Lynn Larson, who is an organist, and was playing at the pizza parlor. He said, yeah, I think you can make it, through his tutelage, and then a, two years later, my own restaurant. We had two in the chain, and then eventually three. I just went on to play for about 24 years total at the pizza parlor. And then I decided I needed a retirement, because there isn't any as an organist, 
And so I became a school teacher and taught 20 years, got my 80 points, and now I can just play Theodore. As an organist, Rode is known for being a traditionalist. He's happiest when he's playing music of the 20s, the heyday of organs and movie palaces. And all the major theaters that were built, they had fabulous organs. And so it was a part of the mainstay, and the music was perfect for the organs as they were. I just think being a traditionalist means I should play what it's meant for. There are organists that play current pop music and all kinds of things like that, that in my ear don't do the organ justice. If you hear my concerts, you'll hear up into the 40s, maybe some 50s, once in a while a song from the 60s or 70s, but it's mostly 20s and 30s. The spotlight opens on road and the entire organ rises into position. The screen flickers and he tilts his head up watching. Most of what he plays is actually improvised. I've watched the film four times. I played it about two months ago in Phoenix. So I know the film pretty well. I will just sit down and whatever moves my body to play this, this theme or this, you know, something that's made up out of my brain. Road dances with the organ, feet tapping and hands flying up and down the keys. It's an all body experience. I get sore now being older uh, because I sit in the same position with my head cocked to see the screen. And I rarely really take my eyes off of the movie the entire time. But it's sort of my script. So whatever's happening, that's what, that's what comes out the fingers and presses the keys. The organ lulls and sings and swells and teases. It tells us how to feel about what's happening, and people are loving it. They laugh and gasp and lean forward in their seats. We had a great time watching Safety Last and watching Road Play along with the film especially. It was great. Kristen Heller from Milwaukee Film says they hope to show more silent films accompanied by the Wurlitzer or feature more performances before regular screenings. For now, the emphasis is on Milwaukee Film member screenings, but they're working on having more public opportunities to see and hear the organ soon. And it just feels like we can really have fun and we can really get in there and create really special moments that people could not have had otherwise and just show whole new generations what this technology was like and how it can be transformative for sound and for your, your cinematic experience. Jeff Weiler, the restorationist, says the organ is time travel. It takes us back to how people would have experienced this a century ago. It's this thing that's transcended time, going to the movies, losing ourselves in another world for a brief moment, enchanted by the music. These instruments are distinctly American instruments. Their purpose, of course, was as the voice of silent film, initially. And whereas you have a phenomenal facility, if you take one separate from the other, you lack perspective. They're just meant to be together. For Lake Effect, I'm Audrey Nowakowski. And I'm Lena Tran. Coming up next, we'll learn what makes sports trading cards such a lucrative hobby. When you buy a pack of cards, you can get a card that's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. You can get a card that's worth 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 1,000 bucks. So it's like a lottery, it really is. 
That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The sports card shop, Name That Card, has been in business in Milwaukee for 30 years. Rick DeMore started it so local collectors could have a place to sell, browse, or consign sports cards from teams across the country. Lake Effect's Excret Nunez visited the store and spoke to DeMore about how his passion for sports and collecting cards started and lives on today. You've been running Name That Card for 30 years. What inspired you or encouraged you to open up a sports card shop? Actually, I've been collecting cards since the 50s. I'm very old, okay? And I was one of the lucky guys whose parents never threw them away. So I had them all my life. I've loved it all my life. Uh, There was a gap there after you go to, you know, you're in high school. That's not cool anymore, you know, but I would still buy one pack to see what they look like that year. And uh, then high school, you finish, and then, you know, you go to college, and you went in the military, and then I got married, okay, and all these years, maybe a good span till about 75, okay, when I settled back down and saw them probably one day in the basement and said, whoa, this is, I, I love this stuff. I got to see what they look like now. Well, that was it. I bought one pack before I knew it. I bought a case, you know, before I knew it. Every year, I was buying cases, and ah, yeah, yeah, I was hooked. And there were card shows and there were card stores in those days, but very limited, very limited. So it was it was like a real neat reawakening for me. Okay, I just went nuts with it. And uh, when I did leave the corporate world, I had to figure out what I was going to do. Like I said, when I grew up, and I kind of wanted to have my own thing. So I looked around, and and then this this jumped out. It was the early '90s, and and stores were booming. Okay, and I I did a lot of homework. I was a real anal guy, so I. I took the telephone book and plotted every sports card shop in Milwaukee at the time, okay? There were 47 of them. Went to visit about 90% of them. I talked with all of them. I said, how'd you do this? And I'm so-and-so, I'm coming into the thing. Oh, good, you know. And it was a real tight group in those days. And the, the one question that I asked that they all answered almost the same. So you you, you do make profit. Yeah, I use that to pay your bills and stuff. No, I, I buy the old stuff with that. And I thought to myself, wow, I've got the old stuff. Hmm, maybe this is good. And it worked out well for a lot of years. No, there's been a lot of ups and downs in 30 years. I was probably ready to quit four or five times, okay? But always something. I've always been very fortunate. Something has come up and kept me going. So the other thing that I did, I put a a wall of honor up there, okay, to let the people know, well, it was 1993 I started it. And it ran for about a good about a good 10, 15 years. I had a Polaroid one-shot, okay? And you could just take them, boom, get the picture right away. It was awesome, right? Well, anytime anyone got a good card, and a good card in a, in a box of packs is a card that has either an autograph on it or a piece of the guy's jersey, the person's jersey, right? And those were scarce in those days, okay? So if you got one of those, whoa, it was really cool, I'd take your picture, put it up on the wall. So it was two birds with one stone. Number one, let's go to Mr. Rick's and we'll, and we'll check out the wall here. My picture's up there. That's one thing. The other thing is you know you could get the good stuff here. So it was, it was a godsend. It was just another, you know, I use that not too loosely because I'm, I'm very proud of it and happy for it and very grateful for it. Uh, those people bring their kids in today, okay? I left, a, I left it up there. That big mess up there is a lot of the people. And 
I ran out of film and they stopped making the Polaroid one shot. So I don't do it anymore, but uh, it's a full wall. It's almost, almost a full wall. Do you have any cards that mean a lot to you? Maybe it's not like the most expensive or anything like that, but do you have any cards that mean a lot to you? Yeah, over the years, you know, I've collected a ton of cards. My favorite, though, is one of my favorite ball players. I got to meet him when I was in eighth grade. His name is Eddie Matthews. He was the third baseman for the Milwaukee Braves. Well, I grew up, like the kids today are going with the Brewers and seeing the Brewers. I grew up with the Milwaukee Braves, okay? They started here in 53. My best friend was the visiting clubhouse bat boy for the Braves. So he and I are sitting at the corner one day, and all of a sudden I hear beep, beep. I turn around, here's a red Chevy convertible, tops down, and it's Eddie Matthews. Whoa, are you kidding? I start to make out to the road, and I almost get hit by a car. I jump back. He pulls over, screeches this guy, pulls over and comes out, and he's just giving me holy blazes, okay? And I'm thinking, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm getting dissed by Eddie Matthews, okay? Over the years, I was able to meet him then through my friend, and um, I just did all my homework about him. I have, a, I have his rookie card, and I keep it in a safe, okay? Wow. It's from 1952. That's the same year Mickey Mantle's rookie card came out, which just sold recently for 12.6 mil. Eddie's isn't that expensive, okay? But Eddie's, it's an expensive card, and I just keep it off-site. My favorite guy, you know, so I'm honored with that card. I really am. It'll be passed down, probably. How large of a collection would you say you have in numbers and how far back in time does your collection go? That's a, those are really good questions. Um, it's millions of cards, okay? And it goes back to the early 50s. However, the pandemic was my best and worst time, okay? It was my best year in 30 years, the main pandemic year, okay? Because people didn't have access to stuff and they were wanting to spend their money and buy cards. I pretty much sold 90% of my favorite cards that I was never going to sell just to stay alive. And I miss it. There's some cards today that I probably could get five times what I got then, that the improvement's been that great. But it kept me alive, and that was, that was the, the, the real reason I did it. And then um, you got to take care of them, okay, because any little ding, any crease, this expensive card just goes right down the sewer it, it takes away a lot of the value the ones that are really really old they're excused they're grandfathered in i mean you get an old 1935 card of babe ruth it's not going to be twenty thousand dollars but it'll still be a lot of money okay to start with there's like a couple different things for the individual card itself okay there's a, a penny sleeve it's called it's, it's a flimsy little plastic sleeve that you put the card in that keeps oil from your fingers off the card that's basically what it's doing okay you can, you can bend the card you can still ruin the card if you really have an expensive card, what you want to do is put it into one of these things, which is a magnetic card holder. Here again, I'm showing my age. When I was starting this up, we'd have a piece that thick, and it would have four screws in it, okay? And you screw these screw downs into the four corners, right? If I take that screw down and throw it against that wall over there, nothing going to happen to that card. If I take this magnetic thing and throw it up against that wall over there, it's going to pop open probably, or it has a chance to pop open. So my last question is, why should someone consider getting into collecting or trading cards? Uh, you know, it's a personal thing. Like any other hobby or collectible type of thing, there's people that collect matches. There's people that collect coins. There's, you know, why would they get into those? You know, I can't tell you why, but I'd say some of the reasons why people do it are because they love the sports. Yeah, there's an investment aspect going on right now. I mean, there's nothing. This is like a lottery. When you buy a pack of cards, you can get a card that's, <laughs> it's it's crazy. You can get a card that's worth twenty bucks, fifty bucks, a thousand bucks. So it's like a lottery. It really is. 
Um, and that's why collecting cards to this day, open up a pack. <laughs> Not many things greater in this business, I'll tell you that. I've had very good fortune with that kind of stuff where I've been able to pull those open. And so if people hear, that's what that wall up there is all about. They found a good card, and at the time, it was a big deal, okay? Um, but the greatest thing for me right now is to see the young people and the way their eyes get so big. And most of them, I got a little boy who was six years old. No, oh, I'm sorry, he turned seven. He drew that picture for me. He drew those cards for me. I mean, he was six years old when he did that, okay? He'll talk baseball with the guys, okay? He drew, I give him everything. I just see He owns me, this little guy. And other kids that come in, you know, the, of course, the thing getting free cards is, is one thing, but finding a card they want or they need or they got to have and all this, it's just great. It's like growing up when I was a kid. That's what we looked for, you know? My gosh, I got my guy. I got my favorite guy, you know, and this and that. So yeah, it's exciting as heck. I to this day, I wish I still had a Polaroid one shot. I really would. I'd be that whole this whole building would be you know covered with shots. You know, I enjoy the heck out of it. But I cater to the kids right now. You know, that's that's my main thing. And yeah, I'm not you know gonna rent a or go on a cruise ship next week. But um, I have fun with what I do. <laughs> well, Rick, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing so many stories with me. You're more than welcome, darling. Rick Damore is the owner of Name That Card, a sports card shop in Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect's excret Nunez. Tomorrow you'll hear our latest episode of Live at Lake Effect, featuring Milwaukee musician and former Lake Effect theme songwriter Willie Porter. Ahead of that, we'll hear some of his music. We'll play the ravine for you. This song is uh, the title track off the new record and uh, a song inspired by the place I grew up, but also, um, you know, profound loss as seen through the eyes of a kid who's trapped in a 58-year-old body and is forever the optimist. This is the ravine. still see you a blur on your bike pedaling into a dream the world lay before us in the sunlight so right we were breathing the deep forest green More courage than sense We flew over the edge Came crashing down into the stream Bloodied our shins On the pedals and reins Laughter rising from the ravine 
That was Willie Porter and his band playing The Ravine. There's more to that track, and you'll be able to hear and see his full performance for our Live at Lake Effect series tomorrow on Lake Effect and on WUWM's YouTube. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. And join us again tomorrow at noon for Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Down the hill, I wanna